Chapter Twenty Two, Part Three of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Two: The Hundred Years' War, Charles V, Part Three. Let us add a still more striking example of the absence of all publicly recognized power at this period, and of the necessity to which the population was nearly everywhere reduced of defending itself with its own hands, in order to escape ever so little from the evils of war and anarchy. It was a little while ago pointed out why and how, after the death of Marcel and the downfall of his faction, Charles the Bad, King of Navarre, suddenly determined upon making his peace with the Regent of France. This peace was very displeasing to the English, allies of the King of Navarre, and they continued to carry on war, ravaging the country here and there, at one time victorious, and at another vanquished, in a multiplication of disconnected encounters. I will relate, says the continuer of William of Nongis, one of those incidents just as it occurred in my neighborhood, and as I have been truthfully told about it. The struggle there was valiantly maintained by peasants, Jacques Bonhomme, good fellows, as they are called. There is a place pretty well fortified in a little town named Longueux, not far from Compagne, in the diocese of Beauvais, and near to the banks of the Ois. This place is close to the monastery of St. Cornel de Compagne. The inhabitants perceived that there would be danger if the enemy occupied this point, and after having obtained authority from the Lord Regent of France and the abbot of the monastery, they settled themselves there, provided themselves with arms and provisions, and appointed a captain taken from among themselves, promising the regent that they would defend this place to the death. Many of the villagers came thither to place themselves in security, and they chose for captain a tall, fine man named William Alarx, O Alot. He had for servant, and held as with bit and bridle, a certain peasant of lofty stature, marvellous body strength, and equal boldness, who had joined to these advantages an extreme modesty. He was called Big Fair. These folks settled themselves at this point to the number of about two hundred men, all tillers of the soil, and getting a poor livelihood by the labor of their hands. The English, hearing it said that these folks were there and were determined to resist, held them in contempt, and went to them, saying, Drive we hence these peasants, and take we possession of this point so well fortified and well supplied. They went thither to the number of two hundred. The folks inside had no suspicion thereof, and had left their gates opened. The English entered boldly into the place, whilst the peasants were in the inner courts, or at the windows, agape at seeing men so well armed making their way in. The captain, William Alarks, came down at once with some of his people, and bravely began the fight. But he had the worst of it, was surrounded by the English, and himself stricken with a mortal wound. At the sight thereof, those of his folk who were still in the courts, with big fare at their head, said to one another, Let us go down and sell our lives clearly, else they will slay us without mercy. Gathering themselves discreetly together, they went down by different gates, and struck out with mighty blows at the English, as if they had been beating out their corn on the threshing-floor. Their arms went up and down again, and every blow dealt out a deadly wound. Big Fair, seeing his captain laid low and almost dead already, uttered a bitter cry, and advancing upon the English he topped them all, as he did his own fellows, by a head and shoulders. 
Raising his axe, he dealt about him deadly blows, insomuch that in front of him the place was soon a void. He felled to the earth all those whom he could reach. Of one he broke the head, of another he lopped off the arms. He bore himself so valiantly that in an hour he had with his own hands slain eighteen of them, without counting the wounded, and at this sight his comrades were filled with ardor. What more shall I say? All that band of English were forced to turn their backs and fly. Some jumped into the ditches full of water, others tried with tottering steps to regain the gates. Big Fair, advancing to the spot where the English had planted their flag, took it, killed the bearer, and told one of his own fellows to go and hurl it into a ditch where the wall was not as yet finished. "'I cannot,' said the other. "'There are still so many English yonder.' "'Follow me with the flag,' said Big Fair, and marching in front, and laying about him right and left with his axe, he opened and cleared the way to the point indicated, so that his comrade could freely hurl the flag into the ditch. After he had rested a moment, he returned to the fight, and fell so roughly on the English who remained, that all those who could fly hastened to profit thereby. It is said that on that day, with the help of God and Big Fair, who with his own hand, it is certified, laid low more than forty, the greater part of the English who had come to this business never went back from it. But the captain on our side, William Alarks, was there stricken mortally. He was not yet dead when the fight ended. He was carried away to his bed. He recognized all his comrades who were there, and soon afterwards sank under his wounds. They buried him in the midst of weeping, for he was wise and good. At the news at what had thus happened at Longueil, the English were very disconsolate, saying that it was a shame that so many and such brave warriors should have been slain by such rustics. Next day they came together again from all their camps in the neighborhood, and went and made a vigorous attack at Longueil on our folks, who no longer feared them hardly at all, and went out of their walls to fight them. In the first rank was Big Fair, of whom the English had heard so much talk. When they saw him, and when they felt the weight of his axe in his arm, many of those who had come to this fight would have been right glad not to be there. Many fled or were grievously wounded or slain. Some of the English nobles were taken. If our folks had been willing to give them up for money, as the nobles do, they might have made a great deal, but they would not. When the fight was over, Big Fair, overcome with heat and fatigue, drank a large quantity of cold water, and was forthwith seized of a fever. He put himself to bed without parting from his axe, which was so heavy that a man of the usual strength could scarcely lift it from the ground with both hands. The English, hearing that Big Fair was sick, rejoiced greatly, and for fear he should get well they sent privily, round about the place where he was lodged, twelve of their men bidden to try and rid them of him. On espying them from afar, his wife hurried up to his bed where he was laid, saying to him, My dear fair, the English are coming, and I verily believe it is for thee they are looking. What wilt thou do? Big fair, forgetting his sickness, armed himself in all haste, took his axe which had already stricken to death so many foes, went out of his house, and entering into his little yard, shouted to the English as soon as he saw them, "'Ah, scoundrels! You are coming to take me in my bed, but you shall not get me.' He set himself against a wall to be in surety from behind, and defended himself manfully with his good axe and his great heart. The English assailed him, burning to slay or to take him, but he resisted them so wondrously that he brought down five much wounded to the ground, and the other seven took to flight." Big Fair, returning in triumph to his bed, and heated again by the blows he had dealt, again drank cold water in abundance, and fell sick of a more violent fever. A few days afterwards, sinking under his sickness and after having received the holy sacraments, Big Fair went out of this world, 
and was buried in the burial place of his own village. All his comrades and his country wept for him bitterly, for so long as he lived, the English would not have come nigh this place. There is probably some exaggeration about the exploits of Big Fair and the number of his victims. The story quoted is not, however, a legend. Authentic and simple, it has all the characteristics of a real and true fact, just as it was picked up, partly from eyewitnesses and partly from hearsay, by the contemporary narrator. It is a faithful picture of the internal state of the French nation in the fourteenth century, a nation in labor of formation, a nation whose elements, as yet scattered and incohesive, though under one and the same name, were fermenting each in its own quarter, and independently of the rest, with a tendency to mutual coalescence in a powerful unity, but as yet far from succeeding in it. Externally, King Charles V had scarcely easier work before him. Between himself and his great rival, Edward III, King of England, there was only such peace as was fatal and hateful to France. To escape some day from the Treaty of Bretigny, and recover some of the provinces which had been lost by it, this was what king and country secretly desired and labored for. Pending a favorable opportunity for promoting this higher interest, war went on in Brittany between John of Montfort and Charles of Blois, who continued to be encouraged and patronized, covertly, one by the king of England, the other by the king of France. Almost immediately, after the accession of Charles V, it broke out again between him and his brother-in-law, Charles the Bad, King of Navarre, the former being profoundly mistrustful, and the latter brazen-facedly perfidious, and both detesting one another, and watching to seize the moment for taking advantage one of the other. Amongst others, Spain and Italy were a prey to discord and even civil wars, which could not fail to be a source of trouble or serious embarrassment to France. In Spain, two brothers, Peter the Cruel and Henry of Transtamar, were disputing the throne of Castile. Shortly after the accession of Charles V, and in spite of his lively remonstrances, in 1267 Pope Urban V quitted Avignon for Rome, whence he was not to return to Avignon till three years afterwards, and then only to die. The Emperor of Germany was, at this period, almost the only one of the great sovereigns of Europe who showed for France and her kings a sincere good will. When in 1378 he went to Paris to pay a visit to Charles V, he was pleased to go to Saint-Denis to see the tombs of Charles the Handsome and Philip of Valois. In my young days, he said to the abbot, I was nurtured at the homes of those good kings, who showed me much kindness. I do request you affectionately to make good prayer to God for them. Charles V, who had given him a very friendly reception, was no doubt included in this pious request. In order to maintain the struggle against these difficulties, within and without, the means which Charles V had at his disposal were of but moderate worth. He had three brothers and three sisters calculated rather to embarrass and sometimes even injure him than to be of any service to him. Of his brothers, the eldest, Louis, Duke of Anjou, was restless, harsh, and bellicose. He upheld authority with no little energy in Languedoc, of which Charles had made him governor, but at the same time made it detested, and he was more taken up with his own ambitious views upon the kingdom of Naples, which Queen Joan of Hungary had transmitted to him by adoption, than with the interests of France and her king. The second, John, Duke of Berry, was an insignificant prince, who has left no strong mark on history. The third, Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, after having been the favorite of his father, King John, was likewise of his brother Charles V, who did not hesitate to still farther aggrandize this vassal, already so great, 
by obtaining for him in marriage the hand of Princess Marguerite, heiress to the Countship of Flanders, and this marriage, which was destined at a later period to render the Dukes of Burgundy such formidable neighbours for the kings of France, was even in the lifetime of Charles V a cause of unpleasant complications, both for France and Burgundy. Of King Charles's three sisters, the eldest, Joan, was married to the King of Navarre, Charles the Bad, and much more devoted to her husband than to her brother. The second, Mary, espoused Robert, Duke of Bar, who caused more annoyance than he rendered service to his brother-in-law, the King of France. And the third, Isabel, wife of Gallus Visconti, Duke of Milan, was of no use to her brother beyond the fact of contributing, as we have seen, by her marriage, to pay a part of King John's ransom. Charles V, by kindly and judicious behaviour in the bosom of his family, was able to keep serious quarrels or embarrassments from arising thence, but he found therein neither real strength nor sure support. His civil counsellors, his chancellor, William de Dormans, Cardinal Bishop of Beauvais, his minister of finance, John de Lagrange, Cardinal Bishop of Amiens, his treasurer, Philippe de Savoisy, and his chamberlain and private secretary, Bureau de la Riviere, were undoubtedly men full of ambition and zeal for his service, for he had picked them out and maintained them unchangeably in their offices. There is reason to believe that they conducted themselves discreetly, for we do not observe that after their master's death there was any outburst against them, on the part either of court or people, of that violent and deadly hatred which has so often caused bloodshed in the history of France. Bureau de la Riviere was attacked and prosecuted, without, however, becoming one of the victims of judicial authority at the command of political passions. None of Charles V's counsellors exercised over his master that preponderating and confirming influence which makes a man a premier minister. Charles V himself assumed the direction of his own government, exhibiting unwearied vigilance, but without hastiness and without noise. There is a work, as yet unpublished, of M. Leopold de Lille, which is to contain a complete explanatory catalogue of all the mandements et actes divers de Charles V. This catalogue, which forms a pendant to a similar work performed by M. de Lille for the reign of Philip Augustus, is not yet concluded, and nevertheless for the first seven years only of Charles V's reign, from 1364 to 1371, there are to be found enumerated and described in it eight hundred and fifty-four mandements, ordonnances, et actes divers de Charles V, relating to the different branches of administration, and to daily incidents of government, acts all bearing the impress of an intellect active, far-sighted, and bent upon becoming acquainted with everything, and regulating everything, not according to a general system, but from actual and exact knowledge." Charles always proved himself reflective, unhurried, and anxious solely to comport himself in accordance with the public interests and with good sense. He was one day at table in his room with some of his intimates, when news was brought him that the English had laid siege, in Guienne, to a place where there was only a small garrison, not in a condition to hold out unless it were promptly succored. The king, says Christine de Pisson, showed no great outward emotion, and quite coolly, as if the topic of conversation were something else, turned and looked about him, and seeing one of his secretaries, summoned him courteously, and bade him in a whisper to write word to Louis de Sancerre, his marshal, to come to him directly. They who were there were amazed that, though the matter was so weighty, the king took no great account of it. Some young esquires who were waiting upon him at table were bold enough to say to him, "'Sir, give us the money to fit ourselves out, as many of us are of your household, for to go on this business.' 
we will be new-made knights, and will go and raise the siege. The king began to smile, and said, It is not new-made knights that are suitable, they must be all old. Seeing that he said no more about it, some of them added, What are your orders, sir, touching this affair, which is of haste? It is not well to give orders in haste. When we see those to whom it is meet to speak, we will give our orders. On another occasion the treasurer of Nîmes had died, and the king appointed his successor. His brother, the Duke of Anjou, came and asked for the place on behalf of one of his own intimates, saying that he to whom the king had granted it was a man of straw and without credit. Charles caused inquiries to be made, and then said to the duke, Truly, fair brother, he for whom you have spoken to me is a rich man, but one of little sense and bad behavior. Assuredly, said the Duke of Anjou, he to whom you have given the office is a man of straw, and incompetent to fill it. Why, prithee, asked the king, because he is a poor man, the son of small laboring folks, who are still tillers of the ground in our country. Ah, said Charles, is there nothing more? Assuredly, fair brother, we should prize more highly the poor man of wisdom than the profligate ass, and he maintained in the office him whom he had put there. The government of Charles V was the personal government of an intelligent, prudent, and honorable king, anxious for the interests of the state, at home and abroad, as well as for his own, with little inclination for, and little confidence in, the free cooperation of the country in its own affairs, but with wit enough to cheerfully call upon it when there was any pressing necessity, and accepting it then without chicanery or cheating, but save to go back as soon as possible to that sole dominion, a medley of patriotism and selfishness, which is the very insufficient and very precarious resource of peoples as yet incapable of applying their liberty to the art of their own government. Charles V had recourse three times, in July 1367, and in May and December 1369, to a convocation of the States-General, in order to be put in a position to meet the political and financial difficulties of France. At the second of these assemblies, when the Chancellor, William de Dormann, had explained the position of the kingdom, the king himself rose up, for to say to all, that if they considered that he had done anything he ought not to have done, they should tell him so, and he would amend what he had done, for there was still time to repair it, if he had done too much or not enough. The question at that time was as to entertaining the appeal of the barons of Aquitaine to the king of France as suzerain of the Prince of Wales, whose government had become intolerable, and to thus make a first move to struggle out of the humiliating peace of Bretigny. Such a step, and such words, do great honor to the memory of the Pacific Prince, who was at that time bearing the burden of the government of France. It was Charles V's good fortune to find amongst his servants a man who was destined to become the thunderbolt of war, and the glory of knighthood of his reign. About 1314, fifty years before Charles's accession, there was born at the castle of Montbrun, near Rennes, in a family which could reckon two ancestors amongst Godfrey de Bouillon's comrades in the First Crusade, Bertrand de Gusclin, the ugliest child from Rennes to Dinan, says a contemporary chronicle, flat-nosed and swarthy, thick-set, broad-shouldered, big-headed, a bad fellow, a regular wretch, according to his own mother's words, given to violence, always striking or being struck, whom his tutor abandoned without having been able to teach him to read. At sixteen years of age he escaped from the paternal mansion, went to Rennes, entered upon a course of adventures, quarrels, challenges, and tourneys, in which he distinguished himself by his strength, his valour, and likewise his sense of honour. He joined the cause of Charles of Blois against John of Montfort, when the two were claimants for the Duchy of Brittany, 
but at the end of thirty years neither the good of him nor his prowess were as yet greatly renowned, says Froissart, save amongst the knights who were about him in the country of Brittany. But Charles V, at that time regent, had taken notice of him in 1359, at the siege of Melun, where Du Gusclin had for the first time borne arms in the service of France. When in 1364 Charles became king, he said to Boussisot, Marshal of France, Boussisot, get you hence with such men as you have, and ride towards Normandy. You will find there Sir Bertrand de Gusclin. Hold yourselves in readiness, I pray you, you and he, to recover from the King of Navarre the town of Mantes, which would make us masters of the river Seine. Right willingly, sir, answered Boussisot, and a few weeks afterwards, on the 7th of April, 1364, Boussisot, by stratagem, entered Mantes with his own troop and Du Gusclin, coming up suddenly with his, dashed into the town at a gallop, sounding, Gusclin, death, death to all Navarrese. The two warriors did the same next day at the gates of Moulins, three leagues from Mantes. Thus were the two cities taken, whereat Charles V was very joyous when he heard the news, and the king of Navarre was very wroth, for he set down as a great hurt the loss of Mantes and of Moulins, which made a mighty fine entrance for him into France. End of chapter 22, part 3